Hi, I'm Ed Straw. You're listening to the Everything F1 podcast. Driven by fans, for the fans. And it's lights out and away we go! Hello and welcome to the Everything F1 podcast with me, James Tiller. And alongside me from the Everything F1 team, we've got Cara. Hi, Cara. How are you? Hi, James. I'm really good. I've not been on for a while, so I'm excited to be back. Yeah, you hosted the last of the season, didn't you? Where I was actually in Lapland. So that was the last one. It's been a few weeks. Uh, Did you enjoy hosting? I did. I mean, it was big shoes to fill and they're quite <laughs> difficult to control sometimes. Oh, a lot. the, the, the rabble. Yeah, um, they, they do like to chat, but I think for a first time I did okay, hopefully. It sounded good. Uh, so I, I enjoyed listening to the podcast. So yes, you, you did a great job. Um, also from the Everything F1 team, we've got uh, FE expert. I'm going to put it in, uh, in uh, what are they, the inverted commas uh, there. Um, yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> Hi Callum, how are you? Hello James, I'm back to talk about Formula E because I don't know if you knew there was a Formula E race this weekend. Well, two. there was two actually. Yeah, two. Tell a lie. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll have to explain to me how that works because uh, I have uh, no idea. I did, I did watch the highlights. Um, but We'll see how that goes. I'm sure I can cover as much as uh, needs to be to inform you on all the great stuff that happened this weekend. Hmm. I'm looking forward to it. Um, and alongside us as well, uh, not from the Everything Has One team, but we have had him a few, a few times on our podcast. Uh, it's the journalist Ed Straw. Hi, Ed. How are you? Hello. Yeah, I'm great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me back on. Uh, we'll have you on at any time, Ed. Well, absolutely will. We love talking to you. Um, the last time we spoke, and um, we did actually mention this just before we started the recording, but I'm going to mention it again, was just before uh, you flew off out to the Circuit of the Americas. How was that? First of all, the race... Um, the atmosphere looked like it was amazing on television. How was it to be there in person? Yeah, it's great at Cota. Huge crowd, loads of demand, loads of interest there. People keep talking about the interest that's growing in the United States with Formula One. Well, there's proof of it. Austin was already a great event. It's a, it's a really lively city, but mm. they broke all their records again uh, pretty much this year. So, yeah, fa- fantastic event. And obviously still almost getting used to big events happening. I think Silverstone last year was the first time I've been near a, a big proper crowd in about 18 months, something like that. So, uh, yeah, it, it stuck out even more for that. And the race itself was we actually you know provided some some real entertainment. Yeah, it did. It uh, feels like a long time ago now, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, I'm just bringing, just... Up, they're bringing up the results, actually, because I can't remember off the top of my head where everyone finished. Uh... Well, there's another one of those ones that was just really close between between Hamilton and Verstappen, ultimately, which we had so much of last yeah. year. That's why that race would stand out as one of the most talked about ones of the season in a lot of seasons. But the fact it's just one of a load of, of fantastic races and you have to spend a minute remembering what happened says it all, really. 
Yeah, it, it, it certainly was a good race. Do you, do you remember much that happening in that Callum? We'll go to you uh, about Circuit of the Americas. Well, I, I'm just copying you and looking on Wikipedia. But I now, <laughs> now I do recall that Checo got a podium, yeah. um, one of his few of the season, and also Charles finished fourth, which is, also, of course, always good. Um, but actually, I, can't, I honestly can't, because it was such a busy season, uh, like Ed says, I really cannot remember anything that happened in that race. <laughs> it, it all kind of, because, as you say, because it, every race had something to talk about. It, yeah. it, it becomes very confusing when you, you usually get, say, five, maybe five or six throughout the whole season that have something that st- stands out. And you can kind of go, oh, yeah, that was definitely that race. That was definitely this race. Um, but yeah, Cara. I just remember Laura Winter's review of it. She was saying, because obviously she'd she'd been to a few races by that point, but never yeah. any with crowds. And she said it was absolute madness. Like Jerry Halliwell was running this yes. way and Megan the Stallion was running that way. And just like, she called it a circus, and but in the most amazing way, sort of the Americanness on steroids. Um, <laughs> so all the great things about Formula One, the racing and the spectacle. Um, but I don't actually remember that much of the racing as we touched on, but yeah, I just remember her fantastic review. Yes, yes, it was, it was good. The last four or five races of the season really were all pretty standout. Well, I mean, Saudi Arabia, is it standout or was it? Well, those last two races, that's the problem, is they're kind of so dominated by very, very specific events that you mm. kind of, I mean, and that's the thing we've all been talking about over the winter break is all the stuff with the, the well, controversy. Happened, yeah, the safety car and the, the well, not so much the, the coming together in Saudi Arabia, but definitely the the last race that sort of dominated everyone's minds mm. um especially going into the next season so if anything the racing's kind of taken a back door but i'm sure i'm sure we'll uh, we'll get to grips with all the racing in the next season very very quickly did you Ed, did you going back to this uh, the last season did you what did you go to all of them or did you miss out any of the ones uh, towards the end of the season uh, I was at all the last run of races, so Austin through to the end, yeah. So the triple header, and then yeah, the uh, the last couple certainly uh, eventful. I think the best way to describe the last year is memorable, because that's quite a neutral <laughs> word. You don't forget them. Let's put it that way. Absolutely, Brazil was a, a great one if you're a Hamilton fan. Obviously, uh, pushing through from from the back basically twice uh, in the sprint and in the main race as well. Most people understand it was a, a, a fresh engine, so he had a boost in that in that sense, but. It, it takes a person like Hamilton to, to, to control that that sort of engine and, and, and get to where he did. Was that a standout performance of the season for Hamilton for you, uh, Ed? Or or can you think of a, another moment that was better? Yeah, I think the Brazil one has to stand out just because the circumstances were so unusual to come mm. through from the back of the grid and then have another penalty for the race. Yes, OK, you have the sprint race in which to make up ground, but just the incisiveness, because how often do we see people in quick cars getting stuck? Mm. And this is what the the absolutely brilliant guys do that sometimes the very good guys can't do. Mm-hmm. You see a Bottas getting stuck sometimes in races. Monza was actually an exception uh, for him as he came through very very well from the from the back. But but you do see some drivers struggling with that. So yeah, Interlagos it was probably the most memorable win of the season, mm-hmm. partly because Verstappen was never in the circumstances where he could he could do that. But yeah, it's a drive that only a few could could pull off, and obviously with the the stakes being so high and the and the need to to close that gap, plus the controversy at the end, of course, yeah, there's always a controversy there somewhere to, <laughs> to make it sort of a, a memorable and, and and just a fantastic drive. You still got to do it, even if you've got the machinery. What was it like in the in the press? Uh, it's not a scrum anymore, is it? Because you've got to be socially distanced. But um, in terms of obviously that you had Max Verstappen touching the rear wing that weekend. Oh yeah, you had this 
flexi wing issue that, that Mercedes were being accused of having and and all that sort of thing was was anyone giving you anything uh, over the over the weekend? Well, there's plenty of that. Uh, both Mercedes and Red Bull would be very very happy to to let you know what injustices they felt were there. That whole season just ramped up and up and up, and it really started to ramp up properly from Silverstone onwards with mm. Mercedes and Red Bull. And I think there was almost a, a collective madness descended on on them. You know, they're still doing a great <laughs> job as teams, but I think because this championship was so long so intense it was basically from the first lap of the first race to the last lap of the last race mm. that they were just going at each other almost always Hamilton and Verstappen at the front I think it was 14 times the two of them finished first and second together in in whichever order it's just creates this intensity where people can start to get paranoid and go and go a little bit too far with things so yeah it was a it was astonishing and I think some of those involved will sort of look back in the cold light of day and think, oh, we went a little bit far at times there on both sides, I would stress. Do you think it's a good or bad thing for, for the sport for having this off-trap soap opera going on? Do you, think, do you think that builds kind of enjoyment for maybe, I don't know, your casual fans or, or, or is it more kind of like the diehards that like that sort of thing? Yeah, I think it, it's, uh, to use the phrase, it's good for business ultimately because when something's happening, when there's storylines, when there's controversies, people talk about it mm. and bad things can create attention just as well as, as good things, often often better, um, you, you could say. I think sometimes when it goes a little bit too far and kind of swamps everything, that mm. becomes a little bit problematic. But having said that, if everything had, had ended, shall we say, normally in Abu Dhabi, it would have all kind of melted away Mm-hmm. at the end of the season but of course it hasn't that's the that's the strange thing we, we ended up several months after and there's still that the hangover from Abu Dhabi which has just strung out this this tension both for those involved and those watching on the outside so mm. yeah unique set of circumstances it was a unique set of circumstances we'll talk about the last race then because that that probably is the, the standout moment of the season be it for positive or negative reasons it, it just has rumbled on what's your take on it Michael Massey is, was he right to do what he did? Do you think Mass is going to remain in the seat uh, as race director for this season? Yeah, it's it's a difficult <laughs> it's a difficult situation. The rules weren't followed correctly. The rule about the when you make the restart after letting the lap cars pass is unequivocal. You can make a linguistic argument about the any cars unlapping themselves mm-hmm. if you want to. You can do that, but they didn't adhere to to the rules. And I think there was that desperation to make sure there was a finish i don't think it was anything designed to hurt one driver or help another driver it did obviously put one driver at a disadvantage and help one other but i I think the desire just to get a a racing finish for this really important race Mm -hmm. because the the eyes of the world run it kind of allowed things to get a little bit rough around the edges and i think it was handled categorically incorrectly obviously i sort of come at this from a slightly uh more detached view in that i'm not particularly worried about who won and you know Hamilton fans can be angry about it no problem absolutely entitled to that mm-hmm. Verstappen fans can be happy that it happened and played out the way it did no problem at all um, but for me the real problem is the, that there were problems in the way things were implemented and there are also things that need to be tidied up the lobbying of the race director mm. that is going to get tidied up that was ridiculous both Toto Wolf and Christian Horner went too far there yeah. the race director does need to direct the race but I think Michael Massey and they'd had discussions about making sure they have green flag finishes if possible, which is fine. And I think Michael Massey was kind of acting in good faith, but I think it because of that tight time scale, because there was so much going on, mm-hmm. it just got a bit rough around the edges. And the, the justification, particularly for that timing of the restart, was uh, was was problematic. So for me, the really important thing is they do get the processes right and tighten things up. 
Michael Massey, I think as race director, probably his position's untenable, mm-hmm. I'm inclined to think. I suspect also Mercedes think that as well. Yeah. Which obviously they're in this kind of holding pattern with Lewis Hamilton keeping his own counsel and not saying whether he's going to race on as expected or or retire. And I think that's, that's probably quite a, a weighty threat in that I think probably he would like to race on, but mm-hmm. a threat only is only useful if you're willing to go through with it. So I think they're waiting to see how it all plays out. So it's, it's a complicated and problematic situation. I do think it was a day when the kind of sport versus entertainment balance went a bit awry. And I think that's, to me, what caused the whole problem mm. you know a sport is nothing without its regulations and its rules so those need to be tidied up and make sure it doesn't happen again because regardless of who you're supporting or who you want to have who you want to win etc it could go the other way the next time that's Absolutely. that's the big problem for me so i i hope they do tidy it up and doesn't necessarily mean michael massey's got to be sent back to australia and never heard from again you know he's he is a he is a very able person mm. and he has something to offer i think he did struggle at times as race director perhaps trying to please a few too many uh people but definitely we know there's going to be structural changes there and there, there do need to be to make that job a bit more sensible to do and i suspect the race director job will be held by someone else but i don't know 100 for sure oh in, so in terms of uh, hamilton then obviously he's got this threat saying that he he might not race. But Toto said uh, he's, he's massively disillusioned with the sport, obviously. Um, you th- I personally think this is its just the, the game that he's playing. I, I think he will be racing. Um, that's thats my own personal opinion about this. Uh, I, I, I think, if anything, it's going to be fuel to the fire um, and, and drive him to, to want to, to, to be better this year. So what are your thoughts? Do you think, he, do you think he'll continue to... Obviously, I know you've just said he, the threat is a, is a very severe or serious uh, threat to, to leave. But if you had to put your kind of money on on him driving or not, what would you say? Yeah, I'd, I'd put money on the fact that he will be. doesn't mm. mean he 100% will be. I think there no. is still a possibility, but I think that's the play. And if you look at the, the political situation, that's the biggest threat they've got because, you know, Lewis Hamilton's a big star. He'll retire one day, but your biggest star retiring because they're furious with the way things work, they're disillusioned with it. That's something completely different. So that's a big weapon and a big threat. And obviously the traditional threats that are threatening to pull out, that doesn't hold any water because Mercedes only owns a third of that team. That whole organisation's nothing without Formula One because that's mm. what it's set up to do. So that's a pretty empty threat. But the Hamilton threat might not be. And I think it, it'd be good for Formula One if it does happen. This Hamilton-Verstappen battle for all the problems that have flared up, it's been absolutely brilliant. Two great drivers going at it. The who won of it last year was almost irrelevant mm. because it, it could have gone either way. Fans of either could point to things that if this had happened this way, if this should have happened, then my driver would have won, the other one would have, whatever. But I just want to see more of that, hopefully with a, with a few other uh, drivers thrown into the mix. So I think that'd be good for Verstappen as well, because I actually think last year enhanced the reputation of both drivers, even though Hamilton lost out. They, he took on one of the best the next generation has to offer, a brilliant driver, and held his own. And mm-hmm. Verstappen took on Hamilton and ultimately prevailed. So that's what we want to see more of. Do you think... F1 would have lost fans from the way it was handled uh, at the end of the season. Obviously, we, we in the UK had the benefit of having it free to air on Channel 4 live. You know, it was a big opportunity for the very casual fans that don't subscribe to Sky and, and, and see every race kind of live and, and see all the action. It was a really kind of, I I, I think it was a bit of a, a bit of, it was like, 
when a rugby player fumbles the ball and it kind of is an own goal, you know, we can, we can use all these kind of superlatives and, you know, metaphors that other sports stars use. I think it probably, it was a, it was a negative thing for the sport, the way, the way it all ended up. And I think there'll be a few people, not just Lewis Hamilton, that disillusioned with kind of joining back into Formula One. Do you, do you think we're going to get the same kind of viewing figures this year? I suspect the viewing figures will still be going in the right direction. I would imagine there will be some people who are disillusioned with it, but also some of the most vocal ones, you kind of think, well, if you're that disillusioned with it, you probably wouldn't be complaining yeah. about it sort of constantly. Now, I understand why people are angry about it. Again, there's nothing wrong with that, but <laughs> there is this perverse thing of sometimes something that shouldn't have happened that's a negative story actually becomes a, a positive in a, in a strange kind of way. It's very, very hard to know. Ultimately, it'll come down to people's personal choice. And I think it will have, it probably will have put off, it probably would have put off a few people, but I suspect the general trend will remain fairly similar and people will certainly have heard about it, but you've got to be a little bit careful with them. There's no such thing as bad news (laughs) angle. They don't need to keep pushing on with that. And let's say Hamilton were to walk away because he and Mercedes weren't happy, then that might change things quite Mm. a lot. But like you said, there's that whole, uh, next season the Hamilton wanting to avenge himself the Staffan wanting to win again so it feeds into the the storylines and it, it's going to be talked about for a very very long time we all like this idea of the have a great race everything's everything's run brilliantly clean no controversy shake hands at the end but kind of the nature of humans is they remember the controversy almost more mm-hmm. sometimes so Oh, that every, would be my guess. Everyone was saying, was talking about it. You know, I, I, I think like Gary Lineker was on, on on Twitter and Nick Knowles. You know, DIY SOS. You know, pe- these people that you you never heard that that liked Formula One were coming out of the woodwork saying, you know, this was you know terrible. You know, such a scandal and blah blah blah. I want to. That's, that's oh, the yeah, thing. Like, if I that's the thing. Like, I think the fact that it was free to air and like even sky posted like that they had like an increase of 50% in viewing figures on their normal, like the, the normal watching for, for formula one, uh-huh. I think probably contributed way, way more to the fact that it was a controversy than the fact that it happened itself. Like it's obvious that what happened was controversial and, uh, um, and was obviously not normal for the sport, but if you compare it to, the numerous other things that happened in the season that didn't have nearly as much fallout. Um, like you can talk about countless red flags or like collisions between both drivers. I think the fact that there was, it was the last race and that there were so many people watching definitely contributed way more to the fact that it was so controversial and the fact that it was talked about so much. So I think almost next season, we might even not, not think about it so much almost. And let's let's get this let's get this absolutely clear. Max Verstappen, on the whole, actually did deserve to win the championship off the back of the rest of the races that he raced that, uh, last season. Let's let's forget Abu Dhabi. Uh, you know, you know, happened at all. You know, the guy led more than well, he, he led so many of the laps, uh, pretty much like eighty percent of the laps for the whole season. Um, dominated, were, got got onto the podium. Four, 14 times in front of Lewis Hamilton, did you say? Or, or 14 times with Lewis Hamilton. Um, it, it, it was a crazy season for him. He, he did really well. Really, he, he upped his consistency, something that he has lacked in previous seasons. Um, and he, he potentially should have wrapped it up a little bit sooner had he not had, like, tyre failures, uh, you know. Or hungry. Hungry, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Had had Spa have maybe had a full race instead of half points and that that 
couple of laps or whatever. Um, Have you got anything to say about Max Verstappen, Cara? I think almost talking about it now, that was the sad thing about the way the season ended. It wasn't that Max won, it was almost that it undermined Max winning because each driver deserved it so much. I think Max is just, I see the F1 drivers and I I think they've all got to be psychopaths a little bit, you know, to do <laughs> that job. But I think Max is that little bit more and he's almost got that fuel. They they say with sports people, what is it? It's, it's 80% mental. Mm. And they say like, you know, every time he gets in the car, he's prepared to die, which I think is a little bit far. <laughs> but I think that's, that's a little difference. It's tiny things in F1 and it's that you know, he's prepared to go further. And the other drivers are aware of that. You know, they move aside because they know he is not going to move. Um, and I think it's just, he's so exciting to watch. And that's what brings the fans in. And his personality is a bit like chalk and cheese. Um, whereas, you know, Lewis has learned how to work the crowd a little bit more. But I think his his talent is undeniable. And I'm feeling, it's, I'm getting so excited. What, I don't know how many days it is now until... 44, 44, 45 days. I can't 44, remember. 44, a few less when this comes out. But <laughs> yeah, I'm just excited to see him race again. And I think it'll be amazing. Hopefully, it'll be that Mercedes, Red Bull, Ferrari, McLaren, they've all got championship winning cars. Um, and we can see really, really tight racing again. But on that same note, I think, well, like you touched on before, Hamilton will use this because he's he's seven time world champion. He's incredibly mentally robust. He Mm. will use this as his fuel. Like when he, what was it before? Was it before circuit of the Americas? He was quite behind and then he had to go and win all those races. And that's exactly what he did because he has that mental clarity. Mm. And so I think we might see a bit of a, a rougher side to Hamilton in his old age where he's like, I'm not taking any this year. Yeah, bring it on, Max. And that, <laughs> it's going to be amazing. Uh, Ed, is there an asterisk next to Max Verstappen's first championship? No, absolutely not. People often make this argument, and <laughs> they've, they've said it in previous seasons. There's a great example. People talk about 2008 and Felipe Massa, and if Singapore hadn't happened. Well, I seem to remember before Singapore, people were saying that if the Hamilton penalty in Spa hadn't happened, that had ha- well, that if Massa won the title and the penalty would mean there was an asterisk against that because mm-hmm. he gained points on Hamilton. Neither of those really hold water. The championships won over the full season. Verstappen was absolutely brilliant uh, last year. I did have him as my number one driver for the season. That's judging him across the whole season. He's brilliantly quick. He was very consistent. First or second, he finished in every race he got to the end, mm-hmm. except Hungary where you had you know, barge balls missing and all sorts. And that was a really, really good drive to get a couple of points yeah. there considering the state of the car. So yeah, a brilliant season. I think the main thing, I'd like to see from Verstappen is it's there was a lot of focus when it came to the wheel to wheel stuff about who's at fault for the accidents, et cetera, et cetera. And I tend to look at try and look at it a little bit more broad. Yes, if there's potentially who should get a penalty or whatever, that's one argument. But it's also about playing the game to your best advantage, mm. should we say, which is where the Silverstone one comes in, in that Verstappen wasn't at fault for that, but you look at it and say, well, would your percentage play have been to let that one go and fight on because of your championship position probably it would have been so and I think over time that will broaden his skill set in terms of judging when to do the absolutely send it and hang on and when to 
consolidate. And we see that with a lot of drivers. We see that with Hamilton over the years get better at that. Any driver will get better with experience. Mm. Max is quite ruthless and he'll take any opportunity in front of him, which has largely served him well. But I think he'll get better at judging that. And that, that's the really almost terrifying thing with how good Verstappen is in that he will keep getting better, just as Hamilton has kept getting better. The great drivers do this. Mm. None of the great drivers, uh, their best championship of the multiple championships was their first one, necessarily. <laughs> you, know, you, you keep learning, you keep improving. So, yeah, Verstappen's brilliant. He is the world the world champion, no question, both on paper and, and, and in merit. It doesn't mean Hamilton wouldn't have been a worthy one. That's a difficult, difficult thing when you've got two such strong performances over the season. Yeah. But I did think over the year, Verstappen did have the edge because there were some mistakes from Hamilton earlier in the year that the Baku error, okay, it was an operational error, but it's his mistake and it, it cost him. The offer Imola, for example, mm-hmm. when he lucked into having having the red flag, you know, he got the car out of the gravel, which was good, kept his head there. So he was there to benefit from the luck. But all the, the all those little mistakes, I say all those little mistakes, those few little mistakes early on mm-hmm. made life more difficult for him. But we're talking about, you know, there's two brilliant drivers both operating at a sky high level. You've got to put one above, above the other, haven't you? And so it's, it's just happened, but absolutely worthy champion. And I'd be staggered if that's his only world championship. Okay, well, let's let's move away from Hamilton and Max Verstappen because they have it has kind of dominated all headlines since obviously Abu Dhabi. And let's talk about who your who your okay. Well, let's take Mercedes and Red Bull out of the picture. Who your non Mercedes and Red Bull driver of the season would be? Um, we'll go first to you, Ed, because um, obviously you, you have this kind of first hand experience with all the drivers. Uh, you know who who kind of impressed you one to one in interviews and also on the track. Uh, the most last year in terms of last year again i'm trying to remember what uh, what happened um lando norris i was really impressed with last year he'd been very good in his first two seasons but there was yeah. still a little right we need to see that next step he took a step 2019 into 20 same again 20 into 21 and i think he's got an increasing kind of command of himself and an understanding of his skill set he learned from when things went wrong there were some still some mistakes last year but that was a really good step from norris in terms of improvements um, there's quite a few of them both are Ferrari drivers in different ways Leclerc, yeah amazingly spectacularly yeah. good science adapted brilliantly to Ferrari he was still on performance metrics just that little bit behind Leclerc even though he did outscore him mm-hmm. points can be a little bit of an unreliable witness sometimes I do think science was just the lesser Ferrari driver but on a great trajectory so you've got this whole selection of, of drivers who are operating at a really high level George Russell obviously coming in at the front this year performed very well with Williams some amazing things he did particularly in qualifying but some great races as well so mm. Verstappen's just part of the kind of new generation that are up there trying to trying to depose Hamilton who because of his status as a seven times world champion is still the one right at the top of the perch even though Verstappen has has taken the, the championship so that, yeah there's, there's lots of very very high quality drivers and you've got to be really rounded and, and intelligent and reflective and be able to self-analyze to be able to be a top Grand Prix driver that's just the skill set you need and even someone like Daniel Ricciardo had a really tough season last year Mm. he did a lot of introspection and analysis of what he's done what he was struggling with maybe the weaknesses that meant he found it harder to adapt to the demands of the McLaren that I think he'll feed into himself in in the future so I basically named everyone there pretty much but (laughs) basically every driver had a good season last year (laughs) exactly yeah exactly (laughs) but there are just so many very very good ones out there and I'm, I'm fascinated to see how they all do when they're in a a championship scenario because that's the last big question you never quite know how they're going to react said the same thing about Verstappen last year mm. going into the season he'd never been in a championship fight he stood up to it superbly and 
you expected him to, but until they've done it, you never know, because some do struggle. Um, so then we want to see the Leclerc's, the Saints, Lando Norris, people like this getting into a position, George Russell, where they can where they can fight for titles and show if they can, can really cut it. Because you can't just be quick 50% of the time and delivering 50% of the time. It's got to be pretty much 100% as Verstappen and Hamilton showed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I'd put Lando in my top. Uh, I'd also put Pierre Gasly, actually, um, Mr. Consistent. Um, Callum, have you got a driver, a non-Red Bull Mercedes kind of driver of the season? Uh, I'm Red incredibly the rest. biased. Um, legitimately, it is probably, for me, um, Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc, um, mostly because as a team, they were incredibly consistent, not only single drivers. Um, the Ferrari team in general, I think, probably had the best pairing of the whole season. Mm-hmm. Um, and them together is just a step up from what we had before, which is incredibly good. Off the back of what Ed said about championship battles, I'm credited like, to see Charles back in the championship battle because when he was there in 2019 and he was like not all the way through the season, but at the times when he was competing, you know, at the front in the 2019 Ferrari before the, the engine stuff, he looked mm-hmm. really good, really solid. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited for that again. And obviously Carlos entering a championship battle with you just, just to see if he really is underrated, um, that would definitely confirm, put the nail in the coffin as to whether he's like a top quality driver, which I genuinely think he is. Absolutely. Um, also, as you said, Pierre Gasly had an amazing season. Um, obviously, it's difficult to judge where the Avatari car is just because both drivers, each driver is so different on the spectrum. Gasly's like almost a veteran now and Yuki's uh, obviously a rookie that's come in off a third, third place in F2. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting to see, but obviously Pierre performed consistently all season, same as the Ferrari drivers. So I think um, him in particular is a, an excellent pick. And obviously Lando, because he just absolutely decimated Ricardo throughout the entire season, to be honest. Um, and that win in uh, Italy, I actually think probably uh, bumps Ricardo up a little bit more, probably more than he should have um, been at the end of the championship standings. But mm. yeah, I think generally a lot of drivers as you say, had really good seasons, and um, I think 2022 is going to make or break a lot of them, uh, just based on the new car, the new regs, and the competition is going to be heating up a lot more. Cara, well, we've got to go to you now. Uh, is there anyone different that you would say, or are you going to repeat what we said? <laughs> I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm, I am just going to repeat. Um, <laughs> I was. I think I was going to say Carlos Sainz. I think what makes a great F1 driver is consistency. Um, it's such a long season. And when you look at Daniel Ricciardo coming into McLaren um, with someone established like Lando Norris, a similar situation where Charles Leclerc is established at Ferrari, mm-hmm. it took him, he had a terrible first half of the season. It took him a long time to you know get used to that car and perform well and he still really didn't reach that potential mm-hmm. whereas Carlos Sainz was just on it and I think I saw I don't know if it's a Facebook post or something and it was basically big events always seem to happen when Carlos Sainz did well or when he got a podium she almost forgot about it because some, there was some big race drama from the weekend so you know as Callum said he went under the radar a bit and I know I spoke on the podcast before like oh what if 
Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc were both neck and neck. And then you guys were like, no, Ferrari always have a number one driver and it will be Charles Leclerc. But I have I have been doing some research and Benito, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He said that they do not have a policy of number one driver and number two. So it is all about who performs on the track. So I'll be feeling very smug. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'd put any money on it, but I'll be feeling very smug if Carlos Sainz comes in and you know that the calls go in hit, hit to his favor maybe maybe us older uh t- more tainted uh, 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 uh fans um that have been watching ferrari over the years schumacher chorus fallen for some uh, ferrari propaganda there i think <laughs> <laughs> and let they, me live the dream yeah it'd be amazing. It's, an it's an interesting point the ferrari thing because i think when they signed science they kind of did have in mind it as a very strong backup but then through that, because they signed him before the start of the 2020 season, and then 2020, Science's performances took another step, his qualifying in particular, but also himself picked that out as something that they thought took a big step in the, the year before he, he joined them. So I think actually they signed Science kind of with a view of him being a natural number two, not, not a formalised one. Mm-hmm. I, think, I, think I think when they say there isn't a number one and a number two, I think they're not imposing that but they expect there to be a natural order a lot of teams expect that but they got more than they bargained for to an extent with, with science and that i think is for the better of the team you're always better off having two strong drivers that that always benefits you hmm. and they have good complementary skill sets science just keeps learning i think he had to push himself quite hard to deal with the, the pace of leclerc because leclerc is so quick amazing traction sensing really skillful driver and that, that surprised Science, but he battled away with him. You look over was it four of the last six races off the top of my head, I think he was quicker in qualifying. I haven't checked that one, but I think it, so, so the trend's very good for him. So yeah, Science, I said he was just, just behind Leclerc, but I do mean just behind overall on, on the season. So yeah, I'd, I'd agree Science is absolutely capable of being a, a contender in, in that team. Okay, well, let's talk about the the, the teammates of the top two, uh, Bottas and Perez. That that um, it, was it. It was it was Abu Dhabi, wasn't it? When uh, Perez held up Hamilton for to try and uh, let that that was now that was close to the line in terms of what what we want racing drivers to do. But it was bloody entertaining to watch, wasn't it? Um, and we just didn't see anything as inspiring from uh, Mercedes number two driver uh, last year. Um, even you know maybe maybe when he first signed his contract for Alpha, he he came back a little bit stronger for a little bit, and then then he just peered, petered off again. Um, uh, obviously, the Red Bull uh, teammate was 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 better over the full season. Um, what, what what do you, what what do you make of the, the kind of teammate battle, um, Ed? Yeah, it's it's an interesting case because both Bottas and Perez are very good drivers. Obviously, Bottas was in his fifth year with Mercedes. And he's not at Hamilton's level, but at the same time, he's a driver who outqualified over their five seasons together. He outqualified Hamilton about thirty percent of the time. Mm. Now, against a normal teammate, you'd say you lost the battle, but actually, against Hamilton, that's that's actually pretty good. Bottas is a very quick driver. He's just not quite as adaptable. And Bottas himself has said, not his best days, he's unbeatable, but mm. his best days aren't that frequent. And that's the thing with the, the absolute gold standard drivers—they just there. If not 100% of the weekends, then it's kind of 95% of the weekends. The off days are, are rare. And Bottas, very quick, good qualifier, struggles a bit more in the races, struggles a tiny bit more with the tyre management. And in that regard, in the kind of key moments in races, Perez was a bit more influential, Abu Dhabi being the classic example. Turkey mm. was another one where Perez uh, 
uh, battled with Hamilton and, and and got in his way a bit. Actually, if you could combine the skill sets of the two, you'd have a, a stronger all-round <laughs> driver. But obviously, Perez had the, not the excuse, but the context of his season is it was his first in Red Bull. Mm. Quite esoteric car to adapt to. So I think we'll probably see a bit more from Perez this year. He's, he's a good driver. I don't think he's a world champion. And I say that meaning I don't think many drivers are world champion level, but Perez can be a, a very good support act to Perez, uh, to Verstappen there. And that driving in Abu Dhabi was really outstanding. Yeah, it was a bit close to the line, but it was legitimate, mm. intelligent, really cleverly done. And he realised once it was done, it was done. He didn't just say, all right, I'm going to have one more go. Yeah, yeah. He, he did what was acceptable and legitimate. And that transformed the race because had they got into the, there's a virtual safety car period, wasn't there, kind of in the middle of the race. Yeah. Had Hamilton not lost that time, he probably could have taken the uh, the free pit stop. Um, so that might have changed what happened later mm-hmm. on. At least it would have changed the uh, the tyre age offset. So, yeah, two good drivers. And I think ultimately Bottas had run his course at Mercedes, though. I think he needs a new challenge. And it was time for Russell to go in to see what he can do and see if he can mm. get to the level Hamilton's at, which is going to be a big challenge. But he's certainly very... Um, very quick, but it's not an easy job. There's many very, very good drivers who've looked pretty ordinary up against all-time greats, and then you transpose them into another team, and suddenly say, "Oh, this guy's really good." And it's like, "Well, actually, he was really good last year." It's just the standards so, so high. So good, good servants to the teams, and ultimately, if you want to score it, Bottas got the constructors' championship for for Mercedes yeah. because he scored more more points than Perez, yeah. ultimately by a bigger margin than uh, the swing between the other two drivers. There was obviously with the last race, there was the Perez kind of stopped kind of all of a sudden. And because of all the controversy and everything that kind of went afterwards, nothing has ever really come out. Was, was he, he was he lightly fueled? Was he not fueled to the end? These were the rumours that were going around. Do you, do you know? There was speculation about that, but he did say, um, and the small group I spoke to him after the race, um, after the TV pen, and he said that they had a few concerns about his engine and they retired him because they didn't want him stopping on track. Mm. Because uh, but now you might say that if you <laughs> surely, surely that would have helped out. <laughs> well, but obviously, if, if he'd stopped on track under the safe under that late safety car and extended it, shall we say, because um, it was under the safety car, the late safety car he retired, and yes. I can see them maybe doing that. It could have been the fuel thing, but at the same time, I think if you were going to really short fuel, you massively short fuel and do kind of a Derek Warwick at Brands Hatch and a Tolman trick. That's a nice contemporary <laughs> reference for everyone there. Um, <laughs> and just run them really light and make them be a massive pain in the first half of the race um, rather than sort of hoping he'd be there a little bit later. So, but that, that's what he said. I'm in- inclined to believe him. I think it was probably just a, a precaution because, yeah, if you've got anything weird on that engine, the last thing you need is a, mm. a Red Bull part by the track and extending a safety car by four laps when there's not four laps to extend it into. No, there isn't. Okay, well, let, let's talk about the rules. The, the rules are changing this year in terms of uh, the white line is now the limit of the track. Um, we, obviously, after the season of controversy and season of precedence that they've set in the uh, stewards' office, um, I think they need to straighten out some more uh, of the regulations so they're kind of more black and white um, to the, this year. So uh, do, you, do you think there's going to be kind of a, a big reset kind of button on the... Um, on the on the rules and and kind of you know movements behind uh, defending movements and those sorts of things pushing off track because obviously we had so much of that and so so many inconsistent calls uh, from the stewards this year. Um, do, do you think they're going to really obviously with this investigation that's going on? Do you think they're actually going to address the rules this year? Well, they certainly need to. 
Oh, whether they will, whether they will is another matter. But the, the the track limits has been a problem for a long time, and they need to do something about that because it's kind of a bit case by case the whole track limits thing, and they tend to make rulings on the weekend about what you can and cannot do. And it, drivers will always push to for whatever they can get away with because that's their job. But mm. I think there needs to be something a little bit more comprehensive done with that. That the racing stuff is problematic, and this is one of the things that teams found frustrating against Mike about Michael Massey. He doesn't make the stewarding decisions, but he generally has to defend them. And there was there was a big driver's briefing on Friday night in Qatar mm-hmm. where they had quite a lengthy debate about the the uh, what you can and cannot do. And obviously the Verstappen-Hamilton thing in, in Brazil. And, and speaking to a few drivers off record, they were frustrated with the fact that sort of because Massey would have to defend it, he'd kind of argue one minute, well, this is this. And then he'd argue sort of something different based on another case yeah. in the same meeting and Basically, pretty much everyone apart from Verstappen was unhappy with the outcome of that discussion. And then Verstappen was complaining about it after Saudi. So you've got a whole group of drivers who are unhappy about the whole thing. It's not purely Michael Massey, not by a long shot. No. He doesn't make the stewarding decisions. The stewards are independent, but he has to kind of argue them and defend them. So I think that's an important one. Plus, there's a tremendous complexity to the whole what you can and cannot do wheel to wheel. And people talk about where a car is relative to another. Well, it depends on the relative speed, mm-hmm. where they were at different phases, etc. There were some problematic decisions last year. So, yeah, they've got themselves into a bit of a mess. And I think the chance for a reset needs to be taken. But they've tried to do that before and it does get it does get complicated and the waters get muddied and as part of it they do also have to accept that sometimes you can have a, a racing incident yeah I'd, I'd have actually been content with both monza and silverstone being racing incidents me too to kind of look at it legitimate moves to be launched in both cases it, when, were, when it's so were, close like that it, it, it has to be a racing because it really is just somewhat just if it boils down to one person's opinion in a box it, it, it kind of you know and, and they're in the heat of the moment they kind of go well, well, I've got to give an answer soon. Uh, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll blame Hamilton or we'll blame Max. We'll, we'll, do, we'll do this down the other And it's, it's difficult. It's it's not an easy thing to do and to judge. But like you say, there's kind of a, it's it's not a, a binary thing that it mm. goes from legitimate to incorrect. There has to be a little bit of a grey area in the middle just because it's such a dynamic situation. It's not by any stretch of the imagination easy to, to do. So my main concern is that if they create too many rules about you've got to do this, that and the other and the geometry of overtaking, you'll get into a big mess and unintended consequences. There were talks about having uh, the same steward or one of the same stewards in, in the in the room at the same time to kind of give that level of consistency. Do you think that would work or just... Yeah, it, it would help. There's... I mean, they have, they have access to the database of the previous decisions, so they can look up precedents, etc. but no two incidents are identical. Of the four stewards, one of them is one of the four chief stewards. So there's, if you go through all the steward panels from last year, there's there's four names that will have collectively appeared on, on all of them as the mm. chairman. So there's some continuity. But my personal view is, if you look across what you might call the large professional sports, the ones that have really kind of grown out of amateurism into massive big money professionalism mm-hmm. over the years pretty much all of them have gone to professional referees so i'd like them to be professional and full-time stewards kind of make sense whether it's you have four full-time you probably need a few spares and yeah you might need a, you might need a pool of i don't know eight or something mm-hmm. because no matter how professional their approach is when they they drop in on a temporary basis to do it you know they're qualified people they're not idiots for the most part they approach it responsibly but yeah they're just not going to be as well equipped. If you've got that whole kind of knowledge of the case law in your mind, 
from because you remember oh well, in Silverstone we did this at Spa we did that it'll be easier to to make decisions you never have absolute consistency consistency is one of those things that's very very easy to to want but there's always a point it's like offside and VAR in football isn't it <laughs> yeah. if you create margin if you create a, a grace of five millimeters or whatever then there's still a point where it goes from offside to not offside mm. penalty to not penalty I'm talking in a motorsport context the, the penalty <laughs> so we also have to accept that there's a certain imperfection baked into the system which is why you need that that's uh that degree of, of racing incidents and it also needs the teams and drivers to be sensible about it and you know there's nothing wrong with drivers complaining about <laughs> about being taken out by the other one or mm. teams being annoyed about it but just kind of don't get too carried away with the with with the whole thing you don't want it to turn into dodging cars all the time certainly mm. but you've got to be a little bit careful about the direction you go and, and achieve some consistency about what you can and cannot do even if the ultimate consistency is always going to be an Im- impossible dream so it'll be an imperfect system but yeah you don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good but i don't think there is a perfect system that can be implemented no you're right i think um uh, callum or have you got a question for ed I feel like my question's a bit of one for the end of the podcast, and I bet you get asked this all the time, but I've literally been at the moment as a lot of fans looking, oh, I want to book race tickets. Where would you recommend, like which race would you say to go to? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, I've got to caveat any answer with the fact that I'm not sure what the attendance situation is with COVID in various different countries. Everyone's got its own <laughs> rules, so... That's the my public my public information video element. Of this is <laughs> check before you uh, uh, before you commit. But it depends. I'm thinking. I mean, we're fortunate if you're based in the UK. The British Grand Prix is a, is a great event. That's a really good one. Um, Silverstone is not necessarily the best place to watch overall trackside. I would say it's got some great spots. Not necessarily the a- absolute best. Circuit of the Americas is very good. I'm quite a big fan of Brazil, but I know that's should we say an acquired taste for people. So. If people like the idea of Brazil, it's it's not quite the um, the the hotbed of danger it's made out to be. But there are <laughs> places you don't want to go and think things can happen there. But mm. uh, have to be careful about that. Um, I'm thinking in terms of yeah, you know, Red Bull Ring's very very good. Red Bull obviously invest a lot in that event. Great green countryside mountains, mm. really really uh, really nice nice area there. I was going to say very good weather, but I remember being there a few years ago and it's so hot there. I felt a bit of sympathy for the fans. There's no shade pretty much in the, in the circuit. So mm. uh, yeah, make sure you actually take your, take a hat and some, some sunscreen. So that one stands out. Melbourne's great just because it's Melbourne and it's a great city, but it's a really, really nice event as well. But I'm not sure how easy it is going to be for people to get into Australia. So maybe that's one for down the line. So I've given you, a, I've given you a load of yeah. Monza as well. It's just got the heritage, mm. Um, there's a lot of madness going around at Monza, but it's it's kind of great, and you can um, really feel the the history there because it's kind of nestling in the the Royal Park. So I've I've kind of given you a list of just about all of them there. At least twenty five percent of the, the the current calendar. I'll, yeah, yeah I'll, try and, I'll try and follow and go to them all. No, probably more thinking Europe. So maybe like Monza, Silverstone would be amazing, but it's so hard to get tickets. Um, yeah, or the Red Bull Ring. I've got some friends that are going to spa and they're gonna go all across europe um like in their car together and obviously praying for no rain um (laughs) but i was like oh that sounds fun yeah spa spa is great obviously yeah recent memories of spa not so good but um spa's a a great one to go to his handvort was really good as well you know massive crowds there good events um 
that there's a, there are a lot of the most of the the ones in in Europe are, are, are pretty good events. I mean, Monaco is its own thing. Monaco is not my favourite place, I would say, but it is a great one to go and experience. Mm. But uh, yeah, that's you, you, partly it just depends on the sort of style I think of of race that, that appeals to uh, uh, to people. Most of them are, are pretty good to go to. I, I've got some slightly difficult memories of Paul Ricard from the first race back there in what 2018, when it was just a traffic disaster. Uh. And, you know, it's uh, it's horrendous there, and it just all went a bit a bit wrong that year. Um, but they have improved. Um, so yeah, I've, I've I think I've mentioned just about all of them. Emma's another really nice one as well. Um, well another good. historic circuit with some uh, Emma. I'm just thinking about. I'm not. Yeah, the other week because it's because obviously it's quite hilly at Emma as well. So there's some good vantage points as well there. So I've, I've named all of them. But if I was, I know. Can I? If you're going to say like one, what would be your? I would probably say. <laughs> I'd probably say nothing. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest Monza. Because it ticks kind of a lot of the boxes. Yeah. And you've got the Tifosi there as well. Which exactly. You, so which is... I think everyone should experience Monza for the Italian Grand Prix once. It might then not sort of be your favourite race in retrospect when you go to various of them, but it's it's got a great deal, a deal of history. And it's something Silverstone, strangely, that's because Silverstone's a historic circuit as well, not quite as old as Monza, but goes back a, a long way to the, to the late 40s. But because it's kind of a big sort of flat airfield and it's changed so much over the years, it kind of keeps renewing itself. So it doesn't have that same feel. Brilliant venue, mm. but slightly different. But Monza just feels, um, it feels like the same place that held a Grand Prix in 1928 <laughs> as well, yeah. which, is, which is, is quite nice. But that, so that's got the, yeah, the heritage element. But if you just want a brilliant event, Cota's very, very good. Re- really good. And Austin's a great place to go as well. So let's say year at Monza, Cota for uh, the US, and then the following year, pick another two to go to. And then. Give it 10 mm. years, done 20. <laughs> That's it. One a year, done. <laughs> there may be some budgetary constraints. <laughs> Callum, your question for Ed. Ed, I like to follow lots of different motorsports. Uh, I particularly enjoy WEC. I enjoy IndyCar and I follow Formula E really closely. Is there any other motorsports that you follow other than Formula One? Do you have any sort of broader insights about any of them? I don't know about broader insights, but yeah, ultimately I'm... I mean, I've been an F1 journalist primarily for quite a long time, but I am a motorsport journalist, if, if you like. I started autosport years ago, covered touring cars, junior single-seaters, all sorts. been lucky enough been to the Indy 500, so I follow IndyCar reasonably well. So, yeah, there's a lot of categories I follow. Formula E, I normally try and keep an eye on because there's quite an interesting blend of drivers there. IndyCar as well. Um, WEC, I, I, do, I do like, although obviously... It's in a little bit of a dip period, about to pick up again. So the last few years haven't been kind of so uh, so exciting. But it it's the thing that Formula One kind of ends up almost being set apart from the rest of the world and most of all, ultimately it isn't. There's still quite a lot of cross pollination, should we say, and, and people involved in it. So you, I can't sort of talk with great authority about goings on in the Formula E paddock or IndyCar. But at the same time, I do try and follow them, and you speak to people, whether it's people who are involved in it. Obviously, some drivers you'll know, team people journalists do uh, covering that stuff and just just from watching it so yeah I, I try and keep keep an eye on absolutely everything but there's only so much time of the time in the day and I, and I also quite enjoy British Touring Car Championship just because it's good knockabout stuff which is what it's aimed to be some some good drivers in that good racing short and sharp which is uh, interesting to watch but yeah the main problem is there's there's sort of not enough hours in the day as anyone who follows a lot of racing there's there's so much 
motorsport around the world. You kind of on a weekend, certainly once you get a few months into the year, you'd have to be watching 24 hours a day on a Saturday and a Sunday to see everything. So, yeah, you have to pick and choose. So both of your questions, I basically answered everything so far, which I don't think is especially. <laughs> and so by, by and large, I would say that there's plenty of F1 journalists who, were, who are interested in other stuff and there's some that do some F1 and, and some other stuff. And uh, you know, it's a good, a good way of, of uh, trying to have a sort of broad view of what's going on. But yeah, F1, I don't think, stands completely apart from from the rest of the motorsport world. Some will kind of think it think it does, and it, it kind of draws in so much of the attention. Uh, but it's just a bigger, flashier racing paddock, and they're, <laughs> they're all people doing very, very similar things. It's just the size of the checks varies and the, <laughs> the size of the team's changes and the number of people watching does well there's a couple of news articles that i want to talk about um first uh zach brown cara you 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 mentioned it just before we 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 started the podcast actually zach brown zach brown mentioned about the sprint races this year yeah he sort of i don't know who he gave the interview to but he said sort of called it ridiculous that certain teams have been demanding up to five million dollars extra to do more sprint sprint races because you know they need it for the risk management and is it correct so they obviously did three last year and they're looking to do six this year what are your thoughts on the controversy ed yeah, it's uh, it's mildly absurd that they haven't got the sprint races locked down, mm. really, at, at this moment. But yeah, well, Zach Brown has a point. Um, I mean, he's talked about that. He initially talked about it in a thing they released on their website, and then he also he did a thing at uh, McLaren where sort of seven or eight journalists went and chatted to him, myself included, and Andrew Benson from the BBC, Chris Medlands, um, uh, Luke Smith from Autosport, various people. Um, so he sort of delved into that in more depth and yeah that the whole sprint race thing is quite interesting because obviously it's all related to the cost cap and the teams that have a desire to spend more money or rather the teams who are struggling to get down to the cost cap want <laughs> as many breaks as they can they had a they had an allowance for each sprint race last year as well i think it was four hundred thousand dollars per race mm. um, that, that you could go above in the case of, and, and there was also a potential allowance for accident damage if you had a big accident you could kind of uh, appeal should we say to, to be allowed a bit more um and obviously zach brown complained about the voting blocks should we say because obviously alpha tarry will always be a, a red bull vote yes Hass and alpha could be aligned with uh with uh ferrari ultimately mclaren is a mercedes team quite an independent mercedes team but even so there could be times when their uh objectives uh, align the thing that zach was complaining about was the fact that he saw teams that he knew it wasn't in their interest voting for for certain things mm. uh, which was problematic so i think his position was he said that they could they could vote through the the cost cap uh, the, they could vote through the uh, sprint races for next season because according to the governance right now you've got to have a certain number of votes but to get it done for next year at this stage you have a new five of the 10 teams on side so right. i think his suggestion was well we'll just threaten to vote through the sprint races for next year with no extra cost cap allowance if you don't seed on this so i suspect they'll probably come to a uh to an agreement on that and because it's six sprint races and as i understand it the deal that the teams were offered was for a very similar basis so it's like four hundred thousand dollars per sprint race again allowance which particularly red bull i think were, were pushing against mercedes i think are a bit generally mercedes are a little bit more pragmatic in seeding ground on the, these wider f1 things but mm. don't necessarily blame them for that so it's yeah it's a messy situation it's it's quite stupid that it's February the 1st and you still can't say with absolute certainty the sprint races will happen because they might not happen this year. I mean, some people might not want them to happen, but 
they wouldn't be not happening because they've been dropped. They would be mm. not happening because F1 couldn't get its house in order and, and sort it out. So the, all, all it, the circuits, all the circuits want the, the the sprint race, don't they? They saw the obviously the advantage for the you know the three day full kind of event uh, of the sprint race. I think they all pitched for it. So um, yeah. I think they def- they definitely wanted on the whole from the sport from the fans. That's that's, that's probably fifty uh, fifty. I think I've. I think it was it Mark Gallagher when he came on the podcast and he said initially he was really skeptical mm-hmm. about yeah. the sprint races, but he's, you know, really enjoyed them. And me personally, as a fan, it, you know, makes Friday that spectacle. I don't know, maybe there's more controversy online I haven't risen to, but yeah, I think it would be, I, I think it'd be great. I really hope, I'm sh- surely they will come to an agreement because they want to do what's best for the sport. Um, but yeah, like you say, it's funny that Mercedes, that stereotype, that they always take the pragmatic view and Red Bull are a bit tougher. Yeah, certainly when it comes to these wider issues rather than the, the very team-specific issues, I think Mercedes will fight their corner. Uh, but it, yeah, it's it's interesting. The the sprint races, I think there's a few different areas. I think the, the broad, I basically agree. I think they've been overall a positive but there were some stupid elements of their implementation last year like they're calling it sprint qualifying the only reason they did that was because there were references to the word qualifying in the rules and they had to call it that in order to get it through and all these and all these things so that's how you got this stupid situation with Bottas winning the sprint race at Monza and starting at the back anyway mm. so there's a lot of things that need to be kind of tidied up and making sure that the, the Saturday morning practice is is sensible so that they've got all sorts of proposals for, for tidying that up which I think will make it more sensible for people so my general feeling is i think it's an upside because a sprint race is more interesting than a pre-practice session things happening on each of the three days probably i mean obviously i i don't consume watching it in the same way as most people will be doing at home i feel there's probably a little bit of a loss in terms of the actual qualifying with it being on friday kind of late afternoon or early evening that's probably more difficult for some people to watch i don't know um so maybe you lose a tiny bit by shifting qualifying, but you also gain a lot more by adding the, the sprint race. So it feels like an overall positive, but just a a little bit messily implemented. And I think if they can cut all that out so it makes sense, that'll help it. The actual race, the sprint race itself, will only be as good as the cars allow it to be. Mm. So, Do you think they should um, change the point system for the sprint race so that they actually give out more points rather than just the three, two, and one, because it makes it feel almost a little bit redundant. Yeah, they probably have to. I, I must admit, I thought my kind of disposition is for the sprint race to be worth no points, because I sort of feel the Grand Prix should pay out all the points. Yeah. But yeah, the point you make there is is correct. So I think probably they need to give a few more points for the for the sprint race just to... Maybe the old point scoring system for the for the sprint race, so top score, the top eight uh, getting points. Maybe even yeah, top the, six. The, yeah, eight six. Mm. There's there's any any number of formats they could do. So it's it's a possibility. It's just difficult to strike that balance. But I think if you're going to have it, either you need to give more points to it, or you need to find a way to make it standalone and completely different by making it a complete reverse grid and not counting for anything. But mm. if it doesn't count for anything, will people take risks, etc.? So yeah, my, there's oops. there's a tricky balance. My idea for it was uh, to have the quali- a qualifying session on the Friday. So have your free practice one, your qualifying session for the sprint race uh, and the sprint race in the morning, and then have another qualifying session for the race on the on the Sunday in the evening of the Saturday, if that makes sense. So you have two, essentially what is two qualifying sessions uh, and two races. Because um, I just, 
the whole, as you said, as you mentioned, the whole the fastest man of the of qualifying, it, 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 fastest man of the uh, of the sprint. Uh, it just it, yeah, it's it's all very clumsy and whatever. Whereas I think if you have a qualifying session for each, then you've got that kind of two distinct races, and you can call it a race. I don't know. That's that was my idea anyway. Yeah, whatever it is, it needs to be, and that's a yeah, that's a valid possibility. It just needs to be something that makes sense to people. Mm. And last year it was a little bit odd the way it worked, and I also feel F one pushed so hard to tell everyone about how brilliant it was and you know the broadcasters were pushing this quite a lot as well and i think they almost just overdid it a bit too much mm. you, know, you sort of see um like the build-up to one of the sprint races uh you know sky i think by and large did a very good job but sort of talking about all the strategic opportunities of the sprint race it's like well there's two you start on soft or you start on mediums there's two possibilities there that's not actually strategic variety and also the mindset ross Braun when he was talking about it before the first one was talking up the simplicity of it and removing all the variables that have been introduced over the past 10, 15 years to try and make the racing more interesting and offering that as a virtue. And you think the thinking's gone a bit muddy in, in places. Mm. So I feel like big picture, it's good, but the detail was not quite right last year. It needs something else, something something a bit different. And, and also the another news article that I wanted to talk about was the the potential for Formula One to head to America for a third race uh, in Sin City itself, Las Vegas. Uh, it hasn't raced there since 1982, where they uh, basically raced on a car park. Um, 81 and 82, wasn't it? The, the two years that they had in Las Vegas. Uh, what, what do you think? Is this a very likely scenario to happen? Uh, obviously, Liberty Media have been pushing for a third race. Uh, so it's just about picking the right venue, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, I think it's, it's very likely to happen now and it's sort of been inching closer for, for quite a while now. And obviously the explosion of interest in the US has, has helped has helped that tremendously. So, yeah, I'd expect that to happen and then they can have um, that race potentially. I think the plan would be to make that effectively paired with Miami earlier in the season. And then because they consider uh, Texas, Austin to be kind of twinned with Mexico. Right. Um so that's kind of the way I think they they'll look at, at doing it. So I'd expect Vegas to to happen. It would be very F one, I think, with all the lights because it guaranteed be a night race. All the lights would be on, wouldn't it? You know, it'd be uh, quite quite glitzy and glamorous. Uh, would you be excited about that, Cara? Yeah, I remember Daniel Ricciardo getting asked where he'd want a race, and he was like Las Vegas because he <laughs> loves Texas and America, doesn't he? With the cowboy hat this year. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I do think it would, what do they say? The glove would fit. Is that the right? Yeah. Um, with the spectacle of F1 and Las Vegas and bring, you know, all those things that Austin and Miami have. So it would be exciting. But then it's three races in America, but then I suppose it's a very big country. Can we not have more races in England? But you know, maybe that's just something only I care about. As long as we get Silverstone, as long as we keep Silverstone, we've had years. Wellington where, finally where it's gets been... its chance. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it, I think it's uh, Callum's time to shine now because um, we have had a weekend hey. where we have had a couple of Formula E races. Now, obviously, we are a Formula One podcast, but it's always good to dip your toes in other formulas too, just to keep your eyes on what's going on in the world of motorsport. And obviously, we have got we've got racing going on, uh, and it's those electric cars that have been oh yes heading the around sounding electric engines the desert yes. is it in diria diria yes in yeah. saudi arabia yes uh yeah um well i mean i promised the months ago on the podcast that i would come back and do formula e so it would be a bit uh 
rubbish if I didn't come back and uh, talk about it a little bit. So we had um, two races in Syria this weekend in Saudi Arabia for Formula E. Um, my sort of main takeaways, it seems like the uh, Mercedes uh, electric engine looks pretty good this year because both uh, Mercedes engine teams seem to dominate the weekend on different races, granted. Um, whether that's a coincidence or not, since Formula E tends to be quite chaotic, is uh, something we're yet to see. But I think it looks like that's going to be the case because uh, Venturi in particular have pick picked up quite well um, from where they were last season, mm -hmm. um, sort of being a middling team. It was mostly because Edo Motaro was like the main driver and it was Norman Nato last year who was a, a rookie. So now that they've got Lucas Degrassi on board, Venturi is looking like a very strong entry this year. Um, alongside them, I, I'm almost disappointed that Nick DeVries didn't do well in the second race just because it seems really unfortunate that um, he sort of dropped back outside of his own and doing and it also ruined my article title um just going to be <laughs> dominates um yeah it's the second race wasn't so good for nick devries after he dominated the first uh, after an error from stuff with dan van dorn but i think we're all used to that by now anyone who watched Formula three at least um yeah after coming he he was alone at the front which is something we've seen in formula one a lot and the venturi's uh, made the most of attack mode to get ahead and after a collision during the middle of the race, uh, Nick DeVries unfortunately fell back uh, to 10th. So he still got away with a point. Um, the standings at the moment, it's uh, Venturi on top um, with Mercedes just behind, on well, one point behind. And then for kind of rare in Formula E, there's actually a gap back to uh, the third place team, which is Andretti. Um, Jake Dennis had a, a reasonable start. Um, after last season, he'd certainly looked like a contender this year. Um, the first race was fairly good for him, but he unfortunately got caught up with a battle in a battle with Andre Lotterer that meant he couldn't take uh, couldn't make the the advantage most of the advantage he had after qualifying. Um, he did qualify second, but was taken off the line by De Vries, and after that, it, it, it didn't look he he was thereabouts, but. After the battle with Lottery, he kind of fell back. Um, the second race was a bit of nothing for Dennis. Same for Van Dorn, although he did qualify further back and made up places. Both drivers sort of fell back a little bit. Um, so it did. It was very much a, a Venturi and Nick DeVries weekend. But it honestly was the second race was amazing. There was so many battles going on, classic Formula E style. Um, other insights. I know since we are a Formula One podcast, I will mention Antonio Giovinazzi. Um, he obviously didn't have a very good weekend, but we have to asterisk his entry because he, in testing, had to go off and race in Formula 1, so he didn't get as much time in the car. And it definitely showed this weekend because he was very much off the pace. But I think it seems to be a thing with Formula 1 drivers entering Formula E that they take a couple of races, maybe even a whole season, just to get to grips. Mm. Um, what Antonio Giovinazzi's plans are, though, are not clear because it seemed almost like he was using Formula E as like just a break and then possibly coming back to Formula One. Whether that happened, I don't know. I think his destiny is for uh, the WEC Ferrari hypercar, but we'll, uh, we'll see what happens. Um, any other insights? I, uh, for British fans, Sam Bird was brilliant in the first race and absolutely rubbish in the second one, so I don't know what's going on at Jaguar because <laughs> um, they honestly last year seemed like a really great entry so um, they've fallen back a little bit um, any other F1 drivers oh yeah Pascal Verlein was again 
not really anything from Porsche other than Andre Lotterer this weekend. Um, there was a bit of controversy at the end of one of the races uh, that, that was sparked a bit of debate uh, online. Um, was it about the the safety car and oh, yeah, how they've, um, they've introduced a new a new they they can extend the race uh, by a, yeah. by a few laps if it means they can clear the track so they can finish under a green flag. Is it that's that's what I gather from what what My, the. Uh, so- my understanding of the rules are there's a limit at which if they have a safety car after a certain period of time, because obviously it's not laps in Formula E, it's they have a timer and then a final lap at the end. After a certain amount of time, they can't extend it because the electric engines have already used the energy they otherwise would have been able to save under the safety car. So right. because it was too late, they wouldn't have been able to have enough to finish, basically, um, which I understand, um, but I don't think that was made clear beforehand so it may have caused a bit of confusion because the same thing happened in the first race Mm. where they had an extra four minutes at the end because the safety car was early not late um which i mean i'm fair the controversy i saw was about the crane that was on track which is obviously a bit dodgy um but then i think that like i'm i'm obviously not an expert on safety in motorsports but i think compared to something like formula one um the cars don't need to be going at full speed constantly around the track to maintain tire temperature um, because they don't use slicks, although they do need to go at a consistent pace in order to keep heat in the sort of all weather tires that they do have. And also they don't have to worry about engine temperatures and things like that. So I think that was probably not as bad as, I mean, the drivers were complaining it was, so maybe yeah. I'm just talking nonsense. <laughs> um, but it was it was obviously a, a massive issue. And the, the FIA said they that the stewards followed all safety precautions that they would otherwise have followed. So... What about Ed? Whether something happens with that. Ed, was it a good good weekend of racing? I, I watched the highlights, uh, and as a, a as a complete kind of FE, I'm going to say now, an FE virgin, um, really. I, I haven't really paid too much attention to it. Um, so it, it was it a good race for you to, to watch over the weekend? Yeah, I, I enjoyed them. I think the thing that I think is quite encouraging this season to just pick a, a specific point. One of the things that frustrated me a, a little bit in the past few seasons is because the qualifying format was so extreme in terms of disadvantaging those at the front of the championship, it, it turned into a little bit of a, almost a turn-based championship that it's like, well, it's your your weekend to win because you're eighth in the championship and you've got a better qualifying group. Whereas if you're in the first couple, you're going to uh, uh, find it harder. So I quite like the fact they, they it's kind of, a, I think they call it a World Cup style um qualifying format which I think means that we're going to see kind of more races that are a bit more representative should we say that of, of the pace and that does create the risk of domination mm. obviously the Mercedes package looks strong although race two didn't go quite the way they uh, they were hoping it, it would have done um, so I, I quite like the fact that I'm kind of expecting there to be a little bit more of a storyline to the season it's a funny thing with with motorsport isn't it that you want things to happen you don't want domination but if it becomes too mixed up you kind of lose everything and there's no suddenly you lose your favorites and your underdogs and there's just oh it's this this sort of person's turn. I mean they're still doing a good job, but it just mm. means that we might I think over the course of the season it'll probably be what we will see a little bit more of that in terms of we'll see who's got the, the quickest packet. You normally have some idea, but it, it got a little it went a little bit too far, particularly last season. Uh, you sort of watch the race and you think, oh, this is just getting a little bit too amorphous in it, its format. But I, I enjoy Formula E. Massively different to Formula One, obviously. I was obviously mm-hmm. keeping a good eye on uh, Antonio Giovinazzi, given he's, uh, he's just moved over. I think he's uh, given a, a bit of a rude awakening. 
not so much in terms of the driving challenge, more just the team that he's in, which is not the place to be, because I think he'll be getting the best out of it and he's not going to be doing an enormous amount better. He would be doing better because it's on a steep learning curve. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good championship with a good set of drivers in it. Ultimately, you can put good drivers on ride on lawnmowers and they'll have a good race and get the best out of them and the, the subtleties of Formula E mean it's it's genuinely challenging so I've, yeah, I quite I quite enjoy it You've got to explain something to me then because uh, uh, there, there were a couple of things that obviously I don't know about attack mode the, it looks like you have to go through these Mario Kart kind of um, like gates on the floor uh, that, that James is exactly what it is uh... <laughs> <laughs> so how, how does it get how, does it give a percentage battery boost what what what's the deal what's the yes so it gives <laughs> an extra i don't know what the kilowatts are this year it gets an they, it gives the engine an extra amount of kilowatts of power for four minutes now right the way i compare it the way i make people help people understand is because formula e doesn't have mandatory pit stops because they don't use slicks this is sort of the it's sort of an equivalent to having new tires but only for four minutes um, so it means that if you go into attack mode early, you possibly lose position like if you pit first, but then you have the faster tires to then re-overtake after someone else to try and re-overtake, or if someone takes it from behind, they'll be faster to try and overtake and so on. Mm. So it's almost like doing an undercut, basically, um, or you, you can also overcut with it. Um, and how many times are you allowed to use this in the race? It just once, twice, during twice. The race. So you get you basically it's eight minutes worth of power, and it's mandatory this year as well. Um, I think first year they introduced it wasn't mandatory, but they, they introduced that for last year. Did I see? Did I see one of the drivers go aiming for it, but kind of clipped and didn't go so the whole way through? That was, was that? Van Dorn. Okay, um, and that's not the first time he's done that. Um, if it's the difficulty is is the only way to do it is to have sensors under the car, which means and because it's on the dirty side of the track, sometimes they, you know, understeer or oversteer just miss the entry point. You have to get the sensors at the beginning and the end. So sometimes that happens. But then I argue that's just another skill that these drivers have to have is being able to and I mean they practice it, being able to control the car to get over the sensors to then carry on. I mean it's it's weird and it's but i think it's one of the things that you can do with the formula e engine that makes formula e sort of more interesting right okay. um i will say though fan boost is definitely gonna it's definitely something that needs to get rid of um, right, okay. just because it's so does it always end biased. up in the same people yes it's just so biased towards formula one drivers every weekend like <laughs> the joke last year was that it was called van boost because van dorn would get it every every race even Giovinazzi got it and obviously made no use of it this weekend because he was just so far back. And what's um, that? Is that an, another kind of kilowatts kind of boost for four minutes, the same sort of it's thing? It's not is four it? minutes. So it's just one small, um, I don't know how many seconds, it's a couple of seconds boost. So you can, it's, if you're in a fight, for example, you're trying to defend or you're trying to attack, you can use it briefly. Wow. Um, and how often, it, how often do you... It, is that voted for? Sorry. Uh, you're, that's, I, during, that's during the race. Everyone votes for... Uh, uh, everyone picks a driver, basically. That's Go crazy. That it's so, it's, it's so wrong. It's fans just, vote? Yes. Uh. And, I mean, it. I suppose it's one of those things where it allows fans to have an impact on the racing, but honestly, it's just so... It's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to justify um, because only five drivers get it. That's the worst part. So, obviously, every weekend... The popular ones, which are the ex Formula One ones, because a bunch of people come over to watch from Formula One and when the new F1 driver joins. 
it, yeah, it's a bit ridiculous. It's one of those things that definitely needs to go if F1 wants, if E wants to be treated seriously. Well, I, I'm definitely going to be watching more of it this season because we've got you uh, along for the ride, Callum. Um, so Excellent. hopefully I'll learn a bit more for next time. Um, when do they introduce the banana skins? <laughs> that, well, it's, a, it's a Mario Kart joke. Um, yeah, that took me a few seconds. <laughs> yeah. so my mind went straight to Renault, like the 2017 car for some reason. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know, James. So I'll, I'll ask them. In fact, probably, Ed is probably the man to ask because he probably has the connections uh, to get that question answered. <laughs> I think they should have. The, if they want to go full Mario Kart, they should have the the shells. So the you shells. Can just yes. fire, literally fire off your opponent. Yeah. It locks the rear brakes of each, of like the car ahead, and they have to spin around. Yeah, that wouldn't be dangerous at all. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, as if Formula E was needed to be any more dangerous. No. Well, it it. I'm, I'm going to pay a lot more attention to it anyway. So thank you very much for uh, re- helping review that. Um, nice. I look forward to, uh, to, to to seeing how the season progresses. Um, that's pr- I think we've pretty pretty much covered all bases. Thank you very much for uh, for coming to chat to me today, Callum and Cara from the Everything Everyone team. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. And of course, our special guest, Ed Straw. Thanks very much for coming to speak to us again, Ed. Yeah, thanks for putting up with me. Ah, as I said, any any time at all. Um, we are Everything F1. You can find us on all social medias. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Uh, we've also got a shiny new website that I've recently had updated, uh, and we're having lots and lots more articles on there. In our... And my face is on it, which is even better. <laughs> in our attempt to become accredited, uh, an accredited news source. Um, so, yeah, check out our new website and have a look at some of the articles there. Uh, there will be more going on because we've expanded the team by around about 10 people uh, writing more articles for us as well. So there'll be loads more articles on the site. Um, so please uh, store that into your favourites. Of course, you are listening to us on our podcast. It is... You, if we could please hit the bell now so you can subscribe to it, get all of the latest shows right in your earlobes as soon as they drop. Um, that would be absolutely fantastic. And if you love it, give us a five-star review too. We've got loads more great guests in the pipeline. And of course, hopefully Ed will come and see us again, Ed, uh, at, at some point this season. Yeah, I'm happy to turn up. If only for the fact that I get to watch you doing the outro for the podcast under pressure, which normally <laughs> I have to do for the, for the Race F1 podcast. So it's nice to be uh, to be able to, just to enjoy that from the outside. Yeah, did you want to plug your your podcast and your website? I know you just did, but you can say it again if you oh, wish. I'll, I'll do it again. Yeah, the race.com, the race.com uh, with a hyphen if you want to head there. And yeah, the Race F1 podcast uh, is out uh, at least once a week and pretty soon after after each race. So uh, yeah, you can find us there and on YouTube and uh, yeah, plenty to watch and listen to and, and read there. And you're you're getting ever closer to that 1 million subscribers on YouTube, aren't you? Um, I'm watching that number go get get closer and closer. Or is it gone? Yes, yeah, uh, I don't think we've got there yet, but uh, sure we'll get there eventually. People seem to be enjoying it, which is uh, all you can ask, really. And uh, hopefully this year is going to give people plenty of reasons to want to watch and listen and learn about Formula One. There's going to be plenty of stories to follow, certainly. Absolutely. It's one of our number one news sources, so everyone else should should go there too. All right, well, thank you very much for coming to speak to us. This has been the Everything Gave One podcast. We will speak to you next week where we talk about the driver's for the up-and-coming season. So that'll be a great podcast to listen to. Um, So thank you very much, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye.